My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In the second half of this week's podcast, I will focus primarily on international political economy with a discussion of three key theories, mercantilism on one hand, liberalism on a second, and Marxism in the third. And ultimately what I'll conclude is to show how all three of these international political economy theories are relevant in the study of international economic law and relevant for understanding then the direction that international economic law is likely to take in the future. Now, there are three theories that are key to international political economy, one of which I already mentioned to you, mercantilism. Some of you who have studied history, whether at A-levels or in secondary school, would have studied the mercantile period mercantilism, the mercantile period. Now, mercantilism was a doctrine that promoted the idea of state regulation of all economic activity. The state will be involved in all economic activity. Now, the level of involvement varies. Sometimes the state would deliver the services themselves, Royal Mail, and in other instances, it would be the state regulating a particular sector. Think of solicitors, barristers. We self-regulate under secondary legislation, but there's primary legislation that gives us the power to self-regulate. And we still have to abide by that, just as we have to abide by the whole of the legal regime that has been established in the UK. So it's state regulation of all economic activity, but here is the key point in relation. It is regulation in service of the nation states. This is that blue, red, and white that they're referring to. This is the star-spangled banner, national anthems, the Olympics. It's all about the nation state, celebrating supporting, and most of all, subordinating our own interests to the interest of the nation state. We subordinate ourselves to the nation state. Economic activity is made subservient to state power. Hard to say that that is the case today. Don't think anyone would make that argument, largely because the mercantile period um, died a slow death some generations ago. But a few points then about mercantilism. Now mercantilism begins from the position that state regulation is necessary, listen to this, state regulation is necessary to restrain, to restrain the brutality of self-interest. Mercantilists said that if we leave people to their own devices, if we let greed dictate how the choices are made, that is going to lead to chaos. Why? People don't know necessarily what they want. They don't necessarily understand what they need. 
And in the end, they may engage in certain actions that are going to damage the nation state. So let me ask you this. In the past two and a half years, what type of a decline has the NHS seen in nurses coming from the EU to work in the UK? Anyone read the newspaper? I've seen the figure recently. The answer? 90% decline. 90%. 9-0. Why are EU nurses not coming <laughs> to the UK now? Probably for the same reason I can count four of my colleagues that have left the UK since 2016. Four international colleagues. When people begin spewing the kind of bigotry, anti-immigrant rhetoric that has been normalized across the UK, when the government doesn't stand up to it and say, that is wrong, then people who are targeted by that rhetoric begin to think, maybe I go elsewhere or maybe I don't travel there. But all of these people are claiming to be patriots nationalists, good English people. Do they think they are harming the nation state? Quite the opposite. Not to say that I'm defending them, not at all, not in the least. Right? They are bigots. They should be treated as bigots. They should be shamed as bigots. But one thing that I can say is that they don't think they're harming Britain in the process. They have a mercantile mindset. And they're saying what matters most of all is Britain and to hell with everyone else. But they, in the process, can damage the state. Now, with mercantilism, as it pertains to international economic law, there is one important point to make, and then I'll move on to the second theory. Within a mercantilist mindset, we look at international trade, and the focus is on the balance of trade. And the idea is that to maximize national prosperity, we must treat global economics as a zero-sum game. We must treat it as a zero-sum game. What does that mean? The more we produce and sell to others, the better for us and the worse for them. Because we are going to claim the resources that they are using to compensate us for what we are selling. We want more money. We want more gold. We want more silver. We want more access to their markets. More, more, more. So from a mercantilist perspective, you never want to run a deficit. You always want to have a surplus. Always selling more and buying less. Now, as I said to you, mercantilism died a slow death. Why is that? One, what I pointed to earlier about the bigots, sometimes the nation, the individuals don't really know what's in their best interest and can ultimately harm the nation. But more importantly, the type of policies from an international economic law perspective, the type of policies that were adopted by mercantile states was all built around ensuring the production of a greater surplus. Now what that meant is that you would prevent others from trading, from selling their goods within your jurisdiction. So the mercantile period was denoted by high levels of protectionism. We want to protect 
every industry that we are developing. So we are going to tariff everything. We are going to exclude everything. We are going to put quotas on everything coming from abroad. Of course, I'm generalizing when I say everything. But the point is there, high levels of protectionism. And then ultimately, and this is where the liberals came in, they said, there are some things we're just not so good at producing. And in fact, we're squandering so much wealth trying to produce it ourselves, we're actually harming the interest of the nation state. And it makes more sense if we trade with them for what they produce. And that leads us then to the second essential theory in international political economy. And this is the liberalism of Adam Smith. The liberalism of Adam Smith. And just so we're clear, Adam Smith, just like Karl Marx, just like David Ricardo, just like many of these individuals that we now refer to as economists, never self-identified as economists. They always self-identified as political economists. For the simple reason that there is necessarily strong interdependence between the fields. As I said before, every decision you make about where you place the boundaries is a political choice. Should the UK nationalize Royal Mail? Should they privatize Royal Mail? Is that a political decision? Is that a normative decision? Is that an economic decision? The answer, all of the above. So Adam Smith comes out in 1700s, 18th century, some generations ago. And what does he say? He says, humans are driven by their egos. Rational egoism. Rational egoism. We think, what is in my interest? Remember what I said to you before. Liberalism is all about maximization of self-interest, maximization of national prosperity. That begins with Adam Smith and the notion of rational egoism. He went as far as to say, we are most motivated in life on a daily basis when we are pursuing our self-interest. You are always more motivated when you are doing something for yourself than when you are doing something for others. There is what's known then the tragedy of the commons. Anyone heard of the tragedy of the commons? So the tragedy of the commons, you had what were known then historically as the commons, a series of common spaces. These were available to everyone. And he said the tragedy of the commons is because you were dealing with communal space, people would not care for it with the same attention that they would care with private space. So the commons, if you happen to have uh, cattle that you are going to bring grazing, well, you will graze that soil into the ground. You will deplete the soil as much as possible. Why? Because that's freely available. And your concern is not with the well-being of the commons. Your concern is with the value of your cattle and making sure they are well-fed. And if you can feed them for free, then all the better for you because you are maximizing your self-interest. The tragedy of the commons. Since then, there's been a movement called the tragedy of the anti-commons. Not so clever in terms of title, but the idea that not everyone agrees. So, Adam Smith comes out and says, rational egoism. 
We are most motivated when we are working towards our self-interest. And what we should do then is establish laws that facilitate the ability of people to focus on themselves. That is what is needed. But we're not doing this just to promote the ego. We are doing this, and this is why we would qualify it. It's not just egoism. It's rational egoism. So each one of you pursuing your self-interest is actually good for the whole. That creates a collective benefit. So I want to pursue public welfare by freeing individuals to pursue the aims that they see fit. And this is then the beginning of the notion of meritocracy. The word itself doesn't appear for a couple of centuries, but the ideas are there. Because you are free to do as you please, those who will succeed, and remember, prosperity is available to all, everybody can win, those who work will succeed, and those who fail did not work. That is the catch. We are looking at success, and success went to those who made effort. Success is contingent on effort. But then on the other hand, where we don't see success, we see failure. We see people being destitute, we see people being hungry. That has nothing to do with the system or laws that are in place. That has to do with the individual. And the individual, it's an individual failure. So this was a split that was created, a binary that was devised, that justified ultimately all outcomes. Success was because of liberalism. Failure is the fault of the individual, not the fault of liberalism. So in the end, liberalism was presented as a type of utopian ideal. David Ricardo, so Adam Smith was focused very much on the nation state. David Ricardo comes in and says, no, let's look at this from an international perspective and what the implications of this are. We want to create laws that are going to encourage nation states to maximize their national interest. Free them up. No obligations to anyone. What you're looking for is to maximize what is best for you. And this is where the notion of free trade emerges. And what I told you before, the theory of comparative advantage. And David Ricardo says, ultimately what we are going to achieve is an equilibrium. Remember, Adam Smith did not say free everyone for themselves, it was free everyone for the public welfare, free everyone for the public good, free everyone for the collective. David Ricardo said the same. He said, we need to create openness in trade. And this is why in the 19th century, we see what would be considered the heyday of inter-European um, trade, where we are now creating an open market for everyone to trade freely. Your industrial policy can be back there, 
Your planning can be back there, but really the essence then of the economic system is going to be one of openness. What Smith and Ricardo believed, in contrast to the mercantilists. So remember what the mercantilists said, we have to protect ourselves from the brutality of self-interest. Self-interest is brutal. If we leave everyone to their own devices, they will kill each other to get ahead. So we need regulation. Okay. The free marketeers, the liberalists, come in and they say what we must do is free everyone because our society ready, is naturally harmonious. If everyone pursues their self-interest rationally, everyone wins. There is a natural harmony, a natural equilibrium to human communities. Remember what I said, it's built on an assumption. And that is the assumption, everyone can win. So we look to Adam Smith and we look to David Ricardo for this. The third theory of political economy that comes in. Failure of liberalism to achieve this utopian ideal, this utopian outcome, triggered then another political economist to write a series of books. Some of you might be familiar with this economist. His name is Karl Marx. So Karl Marx looks at the liberalism. He looks at mercantilism and says, in fact, both of you are wrong. Society isn't inherently brutal, just as society isn't inherently egoistic or inherently harmonious. Human motivations are varied. Sometimes you pursue your self-interest, other times you look out for a friend, other times you look out for a colleague, and at other times you look out for strangers. Sometimes you're a nationalist, sometimes you're an individualist, sometimes you're a family person. Human motivations are varied. And they are contingent, and this is where Marx comes in, they are contingent on the material environment that we are a party to. So you have to study the environment you are in to understand human motivations. So if you want to structure economic relations, then don't take anything for granted. Don't assume what humans are like. Instead, understand how those economic relations are going to lend themselves to particular behaviors. Those are going to incentivize some human characteristics, some human motivations over others. And he says that in the end, Political activity is contingent on two forces. One, the means of production. How are the necessities produced in a society? Once you know how the necessities are produced, you come to understand human behavior. Two, it depends on human consciousness. But not human consciousness somehow in an ether, autonomous from everything else. No, human consciousness as it emerges within a particular environment. So I love watching period films, films that will be sent in previous centuries. And I'm always fascinated by it because we'll never quite capture 
the behavior of these individuals because we ourselves did not inhabit those times. So what do you always have? There will always be a monarch and a whole bunch of people who are subservient to the monarch. And they're presented then as weak, as spineless. Oh, look at them kneeling before the monarch. Right? How shameful. I would never do that. And then the protagonist in the film is someone who bucks the trend to hell with all of that. And that is who we self-identify with. But the catch is, were people subservient at the time? Did they not have any sense of dignity or self-respect? The conditions of the manner, the conditions of the time were such that subservience was the standard. Just as you can go back one generation and the split that we see today, primarily female and a few males in the room, would have been the reverse. Are we to say that all the females from a generation ago did not aspire to education, were subservient, weren't strong enough to pursue a university education? No, the conditions of the society were such where that was not available. And that in itself shaped their consciousness. So what Karl Marx was particularly interested in was studying societies anthropologically to understand how the economic activity, the availability of the necessities or access to the necessities itself structures political activity and how that political activity ultimately structures human consciousness. Now, let me conclude in two minutes. How do these three theories relate to international economic law? And the answer, in every way possible, whether in relation to trade, investment, or monetary policy. Now, I'll race through this because we don't have much time, but consider this through the lens of Brexit. Is Brexit a mercantile project? Is it a liberal project? Is it a socialist project? And the answer, all of the above. How so? How do we maximize self-interest? Brexit is driven by self-interest. It is our money, our borders, our laws, our interest. And we want to maximize self-interest. And all of those who are speaking out, whether speaking out against or in favor, are all speaking about their interest. It is in our interest to remain tied to the EU. It is in our interest to break away from the EU. Us, 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 me, 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 I, 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 our interest. Now, mercantilism, all about the nation state, maximize the nation state. Now, what else is said? What do we need? We need free trade. We are open for business. We are going to sign free trades with everyone, including the EU. Okay, liberalism, free trade, privatization, deregulation. What is the assumption? Prosperity is infinite. All of us can win. Brexit is good for you as a Brit. Brexit is good for me as an immigrant. Brexit is good for the EU, good for China, good for the whole world. Prosperity is infinite. Sound familiar? Adam Smith, David Ricardo, straight liberalism. And what does the other side say? The other side turns around and says, the EU prevents us from developing state aid, 
in particular industries that we want to develop. And we want to develop those industries for Brits, for British workers. We want more investment in the NHS. We want more social housing. We want to create a higher floor and the EU is preventing us from doing that. The EU is harming Brits. What is the assumption? The struggle today is over the means of production and the way that we can improve the outcomes for Brits is by taking control of industry, by redistributing these means of production and ensuring that Brexit works for workers. Sound familiar? Anyone been to a labor rally? So, what is the point in the end? International economic law is at the crossroads of politics, economics, and law. Every decision that we make in relation to international economic law is a political decision, is a normative decision. That is how we are going to approach it in this module, and I look forward to seeing you next Thursday.